the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. This is episode 33. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir. And today we are doing part two of non-traditional approaches to type 2 diabetes management. So in part one, we went over just basic background stuff to kind of set us up for this podcast. But now we're really going to get into the meat of it. So going straight to business, we're going to go with the most aggressive one. So we're going to go with very low calorie diets. So the, the biggest study on this one, or the most interesting study at least, is called the direct trial. So it came out in 2017, which is cool because it also means we have some follow-up data on the study as well. And it's a pretty large trial in that they had around 300 people total, but about 150 or 149 went into the intervention group. And the intervention was basically just over 800 calories per day in the form of shakes for three to five months. Firstly, just taking a second to let that like sink in. Like, and how aggressive that really yeah, is. Yeah. Like I often try and put myself in the shoes of people doing stuff and I'm like, I care a lot about nutrition and I would find that incredibly hard, even if it was something that would be beneficial for me. So that's obviously hard from the low calorie perspective, but also being like, you can't really eat out with friends and family and stuff like that for three to five months while pursuing that approach. Um, so very aggressive, but it's an interesting approach in terms of the outcomes. And one of the things I absolutely loved about that study is that they did what they called a stepped food reintroduction for two to eight weeks after that. So basically they weaned off the low calorie diet, which is not something you would regularly see people do in practice in the real world. As in like they did the shakes for three to five months, then they'd take away one shake and replace it with a meal based on that kind of balanced plate model of like half plate vegetables, quarter protein, quarter plate carbs. And then after a bit, they took away another shake, added a meal, and then they took away another shake and added a meal. And then they did what they called structured support for long-term weight loss maintenance, which is also a bit of a key part of the study in that like it was pretty intense in all aspects in terms of they had a lot of like healthcare professionals involved. Um, they had a lot of contact with doctors and dietitians and like they had a lot of support, okay? And obviously as it progressed like over the years, they got a lot less support, but like particularly early on, they got a lot of support. And their goal was remission based on the criteria we talked about in the previous podcast, except the only difference was they were only measuring it over a two-month time frame to call it remission, as in they had to be off all of their anti-diabetic medications and have a HbA1c of less than 6.5%, which would classify them as non-diabetic if they were to be tested the first time. Um, fascinating in that remission was achieved in 46% of the participants in the intervention compared to the control, which only had 4%. Yeah, that's just such a huge difference. Yeah, and that's why it stands out, because it's like very, very aggressive approach, but also insanely effective in comparison to a lot of other more common methods, which is why this discussion is really being had, <laughs> because it, it, it kind of needs to be talked about. Um, as we spoke about in the last podcast, or as, as I mentioned, it's kind of like, Losing a significant amount of body fat is a pretty significant factor in whether or not remission is likely to be achieved. And based on these statistics, like just going through it, 76 participants gained weight. Um, so that's something to stand out being like they, it was a, they didn't have to follow the diet. 
You, you can't gain weight on 800 calories. They didn't have to follow the diet. It obviously shows how hard it is to follow that yeah. diet. Like that, that means quite a large percentage weren't following the diet, but that, that also makes it more interesting from a real world setting because it's kind of like what, what's possible in the real world. Not We care more about what's possible in, in the real world than we care about people where all of their food is provided for them um, for this specific kind of scenario. Um, but out of the 76 participants who gained weight, none of them achieved remission. 7% of the people who lost 0 to 5 kilos and maintained that over the 12 months were in remission. 34% of the people who lost 5 to 10 kilos, 57% of those who lost 10 to 15 kilos, and 86% of the people who lost 15 kilos or more were in complete remission at the end of the 12 months. So it's very, very correlated with the amount of weight that was lost. And just so we know some averages, so in the direct trial the average body weight decrease was 10 kilos at the end of the, the 12 months. And in the control group, the, or yeah, and in the control group, the average weight increased by one kilo on average. So we've got the comparison of kind of like standard model of care in the UK and the direct trial. They've got 2019 follow-up data. So two years after the study showing that 24% of the intervention group was still down more than 10 kilos. Um, and 64% of those people were still in remission. So that's really interesting as well because as we talked about with the whole concept of weight regain and stuff like that, almost every study I've ever seen multiple years down the line, people are regaining weight. Common, common theme. That's happening in this study still. It's just that two years later, there still was a significant amount of people who were in remission and had lost more than 10 kilos and stuff like that as well. So the statistics, I'm not saying they're good. Like, I'm not saying like that's a, an incredible outcome and stuff like that. But when you do compare to almost all other forms of diabetes remission kind of data without bariatric surgery, because bariatric surgery often leads to quite good outcomes with diabetes, um, particularly over the five-year kind of time frame, um, it is pretty impressive data in comparison to the other options. And just jumping onto another concept as well, there was a 2020 study where they did the same study except pretty much the same study except they did it with participants who had insulin. So they were insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, so a little bit more progressed, and they got great outcomes as well. The obvious challenge with insulin is that you have to adjust your dosage or stop taking insulin or whatever if you were to do a low-calorie diet. Otherwise, it'd be hypoglycemia and that's going yes. to cause other issues, which is why we need like a pretty extensive medical team. So, and one last thing on that is that another interesting thing that this group was particularly passionate about kind of measuring was pancreas size and the fat content of the pancreas. So typically with type 2 diabetes, the pancreas is a little bit smaller and is shaped a little bit differently as well and typically contains a little bit more fat than a healthy pancreas, so to speak. And what they found in this study is that, or in that direct trial, is that the pancreas size actually increased a little bit and had a tiny bit less fat than it normally would have with people with type 2 diabetes, which is their kind of logic behind being like, not only is this improving insulin sensitivity, it's probably improving the ability of the pancreas to put out insulin as well. What would be the downsides of this approach? <laughs> Where do we start? Um, I just, I think that it's the practicality of actually doing a diet like this. So yeah. even though potentially great outcomes, you're like, how is, 
how feasible is this in the real world? And just going back to that statistics on, on like, is it 76 participants out of the 149 ended up gaining, gaining weight. weight? Yeah. That's a really big percentage of people that of like non-compliant. Yeah. To be honest, I'm kind of surprised by the compliance they did end up getting, even though most of like a lot of them weren't non, uh, were non-compliant. Yeah. Um, but I, from what I understand, they were doing a lot of things in this study to follow up with clients, yeah. so uh, with participants. Um, so I don't know. I think it's one of those things that I've never, ever done in, in real life with with clients. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a tough one. It just comes down to the practicality, yeah, the feasibility. Exactly, it comes down to practicality. Another difficult thing is you do need the medical team around you for yeah. multiple reasons. One of it is. In that study, they stopped all diabetes medications and blood pressure medications. True. You can't just do it on a whim because if you were taking blood pressure medications, you would get low blood pressure and be at risk of passing out and stuff like that. So it's kind of like you you need a team around you. And the other factor is what if you were to try this approach and you could get in and see your GP infrequently and they adjusted your medication, they were on board, which would obviously you'd have to get them on board as well. Yeah. They discontinued medications or whatever and you tried it for a couple of days and then you came to the conclusion that you didn't want to go down that route because as as we kind of said, or as I definitely feel like it's a very hard thing to do and it's not appealing. Like I wouldn't want to be on that low calories for that period of time, me personally. What if I wanted to try it then came to the conclusion that I was like, oh, I actually don't want to do this. I want yeah, to explore like other options. Sucks, I'm going to do something else. Yeah. yeah. Then you'd have to get back onto your medications. Like it, it's, it's very hard to do. Like they, they were in a great scenario for it. And I'm in the same camp as you as that. I haven't yeah. done it with any of my clients. I don't have an interest in doing it with any of my clients, but I do have an interest in watching this space and seeing how it goes. I think it's like the fact that they got those amazing results is definitely noteworthy. And something yeah. that we do have to, it has to be a part of this conversation um, particularly in regards to, like bariatric surgery and everything like that. Something that I wonder is those 76 participants, did they gain a lot more weight than the control group gained? Like, do you know those statistics? I don't know those statistics. That's, it's a bit of a weird one, but I wonder if like trialing a diet like that puts you at risk of like binge eating and gaining yeah. more weight than you would if you didn't do anything in the first place and therefore having a worse outcome. Yeah. Like, random thought, but mathematically possibly. we could we could figure it out <laughs> based on some of those out. stats we went through in terms of yeah, because if the average weight loss was ten kilos in the intervention group, like True. we could figure it out. But yeah. like I, I agree because it's like, yeah, like what does happen with those people? We've talked about like the mental burden and stuff like that. Mm. Like even the feeling of failure, so to speak, in terms of like if you've attempted that and then you remain in the study and you're still trying to do <laughs> what the um, people are telling you to do <laughs> and you stay in and you keep following up <laughs> with them, that'd be a hard, hard thing to go through. Definitely. Yeah. Next one you want to talk about low carb diets? Yeah, let's get on to low carb diets. So this is <laughs> definitely, I would still consider this at some points an aggressive approach, but nowhere near as aggressive as the very low calorie approach we've just talked about. So it is probably one of your more popular ones you'd see people take as a non-traditional approach. So obviously low carb diets are going to address that blood glucose level issue um, while you're on it at least. So less carbs, less glucose, less insulin required. So it, its mechanism is pretty simple in regards to type 2 diabetes. Um, but the argument that's usually made against low carb diets is going to be the adherence. So kind of similar to what we talked about with the very low calorie diets and their low adherence. Um, we see a very similar thing sometimes in very, very low carb diets. 
Um, but a study that you've noted here, is it, yeah, that uh, the CSIRO, is it a statement? Yeah, so it's a yeah. low, no, so they did a low-carb diet study. So they've got their book, the CSIRO Low-Carb Book. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, so basically the CSIRO, they did a study where they, it was a 12-month study, they got people to do aim for less than 50 grams of carbs per day to start off with, which arguably could be a ketogenic diet, particularly for mm. people of the size who were in the study. Like it's borderline ketogenic diet. And then increasing to less than 70 grams of carbs per day later on in the study to improve adherence was that kind of thing. Like maybe that's an extra serve of fruit or like toast or something like that. Like it makes it a little bit easier. Um, the interesting thing, because I, I do agree with you on the adherence thing, but the interesting thing in this study was that their adherence based on their criteria of what it takes to adhere to the study. And I think the average weight loss was somewhere between five and 10 kilos. I think it was around 10 kilos. Um, don't quote me on that one, between five and 10 <laughs> kilos. Um, their, their criteria for adherence led to slightly more people in the low-carb group sticking to the plan enough to be included as part of the end result than in the lower-fat, higher-carb-in-comparison kind of group. Um, they both got good results in the study, like yeah. the standard model-of-care-style diet got good results. Um, but the adherence was slightly higher. But there's a few things that, one mathematically the numbers don't fully stack up in terms of like if they stuck to the diet 100% their weight loss actually would have been a little bit more so we know that adherence still wasn't perfect um but better than expected better than expected that like that would it stood out to me that's why yeah. I, I remember this years later yeah. because it stood out to me um but the the other thing that I've often said to like clients when I've I've mentioned this study and like mentioned this as an option and lower carb diets but not necessarily ketogenic for the sake of this kind of discussion um is that they had a book to sell. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's always a little bit of a red flag. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Like it, it's in, it is in their interests. Like I'm not being a skeptic or anything like that, but it's like that is an outlier study in terms of compliance. Um, jumping to ketogenic diets, mm. they have shown great results when adhered to for two obvious reasons. One, as you said, like the mechanism, carbs, yes, <laughs> glucose, makes sense. insulin, makes sense. Um, but... The adherence rates are quite low and there, there is even adherence rates kind of measured for people with type 2 diabetes who would be more motivated to go down that route than the average person who was just looking to lose weight, for example. And it seems like adherence rates are relatively high in those who have epilepsy and those who are athletes who believe that it's going to improve their performance. Sure. Those adherence rates are relatively high. For almost every other group, adherence rates are really low. <laughs> And I can definitely see why. It's a very difficult thing to follow. Um, and you kind of think, like, what is the impact on that individual's quality of life, like social events, um, just generally being able to just enjoy yeah. food? Like, I can definitely see why people don't want to be on this for a long, long time. Because going back to remission versus management is this is more about management like that this alone without weight loss yeah. is not going to put you into remission like yeah. actual remission from the disease so you'd likely if you're not going to lose weight as well you'd likely have to do this forever as the your management yeah i suppose that's the second point that like a ketogenic diet most people are going to lose weight on that because they're going to go into a calorie deficit yeah. but like there is that concept and like touching on that even further is that if you have been low carb for a long period of time it seems like when you do introduce carbs you're not as sensitive to insulin as somebody who had the exact same body composition mm. and all other factors being equal 
who had had slightly more carbs for a significant portion of time. If somebody who was who'd done a ketogenic diet for a year did an oral glucose tolerance test, it seems like they perform worse on that test than somebody who has all other factors being equal. But yeah, that it's an argument in terms of like, people in the low carb diet community talk about this being like, I want to prove I'm in remission. How do I beat the oral glucose tolerance test? And they do talk about being like, okay, well maybe you should introduce carbs for a little bit before you take the test basically just to like perform well on that test. Um, but yeah, interesting, interesting topic. Definitely. But yeah, as mentioned, like if you like just did low carb, that is for management. If you kept your calories the same and stuff like that and your body fat and stuff like that didn't decrease, you didn't become more sensitive to insulin. But it is one option that when adhered to seems to have good outcomes. It does quite well, for yeah. sure. The One of the last things we're going to talk about before we move on to a more broad approach that we'd, we'd potentially take is plant-based diets. Um, so, I mean, you'd think that this is something that I've gone down the rabbit hole of, but uh, I actually haven't. Um, so this is kind of the first time that I've gone a little bit down this rabbit hole um, in terms of using plant-based diets for the management of type 2 diabetes. So there is a 2009 study that did compare a low-fat vegan diet to conventional diabetes management. Um, and on average, like when just talking about weight loss, the people on the low-fat vegan diet lost about 4.4 kilos, whilst the control group lost about 3 kilos. So not a really huge difference in those two groups, just from a weight loss perspective. So it's not a crazy outcome. Um, but the vegan diet did improve the HbA1c more than the control um, and dramatically outperformed in terms of cholesterol, which you would expect from a diet so low in saturated fat because it's low in animal products. Um, I think the, the biggest point to make here is that something like this that is relatively high carb in nature, as a plant-based diet usually is, still provided better results than what most people see sometimes even with the standard yeah model attempting of to follow the or like even doing a low carb diet at some points yeah so i'm i just think if we're it just highlights that overly focusing on carbs and low carb is definitely missing the bigger picture um and i think that's probably what comes most from this discussion yeah and like i'm pretty much just repeating your statement but exactly that like it is like highlighting that if you're overly focusing on carbohydrates you're missing other aspects as well. Like if, and I say that because I spend time on Twitter reading like low, <laughs> low carb advocates kind of statements, but it's kind of like if you bought too much into what they're saying, you would think that this higher carbohydrate vegan diet would be a massive step back in the management of diabetes, not an improvement. Yeah, you would think if it, if it the best case scenario would be that it had no effect at all that yeah. it, you'd think it would be worse yeah. um but that's just not the case that it, it in sometimes can actually improve the management of type 2 diabetes so I, I think that's very interesting yeah heaps of things to consider so then the last thing we'll touch on is what i'd call a broad approach and some things that like like if if i had type 2 diabetes it's like well what would i focus on and I'm going to touch on some things that you can focus on without putting yourself into a box of being like low carb, um, mm. plant based, or a, any any kind of box. And like these things are one exercise in terms of both building muscle, improving body composition, decreasing body fat, um, the building muscle, and like improving insulin sensitivity and stuff like that. But also actually burning glucose. Like there is a stat out there that's something along the lines of either 10 minutes or 30 minutes. Don't quote me on it because. 
I can't remember which one it is, but it's either 10 minutes or 30 minutes of walking is the equivalent of metformin, which is the first line of diabetes management from a medication standpoint. And that's just because you're burning glucose as you're walking. And like when I say in the equivalent of metformin, I mean the equivalent of metformin in terms of like what would happen to your blood glucose levels and HbA1c and everything like that. So like that's just 10 or 30 minutes of walking. What if you did more exercise than that? Like there, there's there's a lot of factors to consider. And I often do wonder if, say it's 10 minutes, just to keep this simple, if people were posed 10 minutes of exercise or first-line medication for diabetes, which one would you prefer? I feel like a lot of people might choose the 10 minutes of exercise. Not 100% sure on that, but like I, I feel like it's, it's worth being aware that that's something to consider it is a factor. Another point that I go with personally is calorie deficit until as lean as desired. Um, that's a bit of a nuanced one because it's kind of like you could even be in the healthy BMI range but still benefit from getting slightly leaner in terms of insulin sensitivity. That doesn't make it a great idea for all other variables in life and whatever, but purely from a diabetes management perspective, that could be something that could help. So like me personally, I would I would do the calorie deficit approach. Another variable is keeping protein relatively high, partly from the muscle mass perspective and insulin sensitivity, but also the appetite management perspective and stuff like that too. And also even keeping calories high enough for what I wanted without having to rely on carbohydrates or going excessively high fat. In, in my case, that would be a personal preference. Another one is keeping fiber high, regardless of the style of diet chosen, even if it's low carb, whether it's plant-based, whether it's whatever, keeping fiber relatively high is going to be a useful thing. That's even something that you can think of in terms of being similar to going low glycemic because it's kind of like it slows down the absorption of the carbohydrates and how quickly they turn into glucose in the blood. And as another general thing, I would avoid going overly high in carbs, particularly in any individual occasion, meal, snack or whatever, even though I personally would still like a flexible approach, I'd still avoid going overly high in any individual occasion and probably avoiding or limiting, reducing particularly high glycemic index carbohydrates. And all of those things can be done within the context of pretty much any approach, basically. This has been episode 33 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.